This is Unfiltered, episode 103 for June 25th, 2014. What would you do in Iraq? Well, I, what we should have done in Iraq was no, no, what to would leave you do now? behind no. a force. Well, what I would do now, John, is, uh, among other things, be realistic about the nature of the threat. When we're arguing over 300 advisors, uh, when the request had been for 20,000 in order to do the job right, I'm not sure we've really addressed the problem. Welcome to Unfiltered, episode 103 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly show that's distracting you from all of that TV you really shouldn't be watching. My name is Chris, and Mr. Chase is off this week for a family event, but uh, no, never fear, we have a lot of good stuff in this week's episode. In fact, I want to say, this is almost a part two of last week's episode, episode 102 of the Unfiltered show back in Iraq. We dove into the situation as it's rapidly developing, and the U.S. is ever-increasing involvement in Iraq, 103. Because Chase isn't here, I'm going to do sort of a companion episode to 102. It's not required listening, but if you do have some time, I would kind of recommend you start there. Go grab episode uh, 102 and then listen to 103, but if you don't have to, I will try to keep it in such a way that you could just listen to 103. We have a good show today, and uh, one thing I like to do on the Unfiltered program is start out with a little... NSA coverage, update on privacy concerns, especially where they intersect with technology and anything that we're finding out recently. Well, one of the main events that's been going on as we sort of build up to this new release, what Glenn Greenwald called his grand finale, his firework grand finale, he's been going out and doing this book tour, building up to this big release. And so he stopped by Shep's desk at the uh, Fox News News Center with the giant tablets, and uh, he kind of pushed him a little bit on a few questions and asked him, if he's been getting, getting any sort of pressure not to release the latest round of information. Has there been pressure on you not to release the names of those who were targeted by the NSA in this upcoming revelation? Huge pressure. What kind of pressure? The NSA saying that we will be unveiling legitimate surveillance targets. Um, and, you know, the J. Edgar Hoover FBI made the same argument to people in the 60s and 70s when they unveiled those kinds of surveillance programs that were targeting right-wing groups and anti-war leaders and, and, and civil rights leaders. They said these are genuine threats and you're going to be disrupting legitimate law enforcement. That's what the government always says when you expose their secrets or bring them unwanted transparency. You've said that so many of these, uh, the items within these documents have not been released because you used journalistic integrity and decided not to. But Ed Snowden has taught us that releases happen whether we want them to happen or not. To what level of concern that some of the information that you have might get out that doesn't need to be out? Well, the really good thing is that Edward Snowden was a highly trained operative in how to protect sensitive electronic data from unwanted disclosures. Well, that's and not so, what you hear and read. I mean, well, I've seen I mean, the pushback on the, the other the, side. No, I mean, there's no question. He, he trained CIA officials on how to protect some of their most in, 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 uh, sensitive information electronically. And we have used the highest forms of encryption. The only people who have lost control of any NSA documents are the NSA and the GCHQ. We have never lost control of a single document. We've been extraordinarily careful with how we've managed this information. And when you publish this information, will it come out in a newspaper and then what happens next? Yeah, it'll come out at, at the intercept. Have you which talked is to I, any of these people who've been targeted or the kinds of people who've been Yeah, targeted? I mean, that was one of the reasons it took so long is because we're not going to expose people as being NSA targets who don't want to be exposed. And there are people who don't want to be exposed even though they think it was invalid because they feel it'll 
harm their reputation or compromise their privacy. But all the people who on whom we're reporting consented to it. They participated in the story. They spoke on camera. We're publishing video. Will so we that recognize can, these names and some of these people? You will definitely recognize some of these names and some of these. I just want to make sure we capture what he just said there. He said that these are these are U.S. citizens that he has spoken to that they have captured on video that they will be releasing the video presumably on the Intercept website. This is all all regarding his grand finale. People. From politics, from government, from what? From a little of all of that. Okay. And I just I can't give hints, um, but this but but they're 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 people who when I believe it seems very odd. Why can't he give hints? It's his story. He's the one releasing the information. Will so we recognize can, these names and some of these people? You will definitely recognize some of these names and some of these people. From politics, from government, from what? From a little of all of that. Okay. And I just I can't give hints, um, <laughs> okay. but this, but but they're 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 people who. When I believe, when you see that the, 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 that they're the targets, you will see that they have nothing to do with terrorism and that they are definitely people engaged in political activism that's controversial. And it's imminent. And it's imminent. There are people who are engaged in political activism that is controversial and the report is imminent. Hmm. That's really, you know, it's, that, I, that's one of those things I think we just have to wait and see, but that's an interesting uh, statement. Uh, something else we promised we'd follow up on and now we're going to deliver is you might be familiar with this impending drone memo release. This is what it's been called, the drone memo. Well, it's sort of a, a nice thing to call it, I suppose. It's the memo that gave the CIA, the Pentagon, and the Obama administration the legal justification. Yeah, a memo gave them the legal justification. A memo gave them the legal justification to drone U.S. citizens, several U.S. citizens, as a matter of fact. And it's been a long process to get that memo released. Well, the memo's here, and it is highly redacted, but there's a few things to note. During a three-month span in 2011, U.S. drones killed four American citizens overseas. On September 30th, cleric Amar al-Awlaki and Samir Khan were killed in a drone strike in Yemen. Two weeks later, another U.S. drone killed Anwar's 16-year-old son, Abdul Rahman, in Yemen. A month later, a U.S. citizen named Jude Kenan Mohammed was killed in Pakistan. For the past two and a half years, the Obama administration— Also, uh, Ken was—I don't know why they don't specify, but Ken also was a young man, so— uh, and, and actually, uh, Awaki, I don't, I don't think it was beyond his early 30s. A month later, a U.S. citizen named Jude Kenan Mohammed was killed in Pakistan. For the past two and a half years, the Obama administration has kept secret its legal rationale for killing American citizens overseas. That changed on Monday when a federal court released a heavily redacted 41-page memo. It concludes the 2011 authorization to use military force gave the U.S. government the authority to target Amr al-Awlaki who the Obama administration claims had joined al-Qaeda. The Justice Department memo states, quote, we believe the AUMF's authority to use lethal force abroad also may apply in appropriate circumstances to, to a U.S. citizen who is part of the forces of an enemy. The memo goes on to say the U.S. could use lethal force against a U.S. citizen when high-level government officials have determined a capture operation is unfeasible and that the targeted person is engaged in activities that pose a continued and imminent threat to— Now, a couple of pieces of clarification here. Not necessarily a judge, but just high government officials. That's pretty spooky uh, if you think about it, because it turns out those high-level officials could also just be restricted to just the CIA— they actually have the power. We'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, and I think that's critical to underscore. And the other thing that you absolutely have to keep in mind is they have changed the definition of imminent 
imminent does not actually have to mean imminent in the sense that you and I think of it, as in something's about to happen. Imminent in this definition that they're using, uh, use it's more of the potential for something to happen. That's more of what imminent means. And uh, if you want more information on that, I have a link in the show notes where they have an extended interview where they go into that particular aspect. And that the targeted person is engaged in activities that pose a continued and imminent threat to U.S. persons or interests. The memo also states the U.S. Constitution would not require the government to provide, quote, further process, such as advance notice of a court hearing before carrying out a deadly strike on a U.S. citizen. The memo was written on July 16, 2010, months after the first known U.S. attempt to kill Anwar al-Awlaki. So they didn't even write that memo until after the first attempt to kill him. And the question that we have to ask, and I think Eric's raised it nicely in the chat room, is if we really want to stop terrorism, why would we not present our case, present our evidence, and drag him through the system, put him on the world stage, make everybody look at him, make everybody see how we can take one of these people, we can identify them, we can make them, we can show their face to the world, and then put them through the system and throw them in jail and demonstrate how the U.S. legal system can stop terrorism Instead, we kill them in secret so that nobody knows about it. That's not a deterrent. That's not, in, that's not preventing anybody. And then through a, a cluttered and cumbersome process, the information leaks out in an embarrassing way. And of course, like everything these days, the critical components of this memo have been redacted. Can you talk about the redaction in the footnotes? Why is this so significant? The... There are multiple redactions in this memo. The largest chunks of redactions are, we know from reading the court's opinion, with respect to the factual basis for the administration's determination that it could carry out this killing. There's also a set of redactions in the footnotes that appear to be about the legal justifications. Um, and two key aspects again here. One is that without knowing the factual basis for why these killings are lawful, we don't know whether they are in fact lawful. Repeatedly, the memo's authors say that the legal conclusions are based on factual representations made by the CIA, by the Department of Defense, and the intelligence community. It also says that senior intelligence officials can make the determination about whether facts are justified to permit the killing. And this shows you just how dangerous it is not to have any independent judicial review before or after the fact, which is what the administration... I'm sorry, did, did she say that officials in the CIA and the intelligence agencies... Repeatedly, the memo's authors say that the legal conclusions are based on factual representations made by the CIA. Factual representations, so not the facts themselves, but representations of the facts, probably because the facts are classified, right, as everything is, that can be made by the CIA. And I believe she's about to say the CIA alone has the power to decide if those represented facts are good enough to kill. By the Department of Defense and the intelligence community. It also says that senior intelligence officials can make the determination about whether facts are justified to permit the killing. And this shows you just how dangerous it is not to have any independent judicial review before or after the fact, which is what the administration has argued and what this memo seeks to justify. And I guess what I, when I hear that, I hear intel. So once again, another example of how our intelligence agencies are operating potentially unilaterally. 
and it seems like every time we scratch down into a conflict and a, a controversy like this, we discover an intelligence agency that was operating unilaterally. Like, I believe one of the truth, and I, it's come out more now, but early on, we were, we, were, we were one of the first places to say, hey, this situation in Benghazi has got something to do with the CIA annex building there. Now, that's become much more clear as the Benghazi controversy has developed. But again, what's, what's the story there? What's the weapons? What was the weapons connection in Libya? What's the weapons connection in Syria? What's the weapons connection with ISIS? And what is the intelligence agency's role in this? What does the NSA's metadata collection, what role does that play in the droning of Alwaki and locating him and his 16-year-old son that was somewhere else completely different? Is that the metadata program? Because it would seem from the leaks that it is. And then, so they are doing the collection, they are finding the targets, and then they are able to determine the justification internally if the facts, oh, I'm sorry, the representation of the facts are justified, then they take it up to Barry in the form of baseball cards, and they present Barry, and this is this is not even a sick, perverted joke, this is literally how they do it, they present President Obama with a stack of cards and on there he looks at the vital stats of the terrorists and picks which ones they're going to go kill. And that's how they do this system. And they want us to believe that it's sophisticated. They want us to believe that it's clean. They want us to believe that there's due process. But in reality, it's people punching a card, getting a certain number, saying they're taking a tough stance on terrorism and doing it in a way that is, if you think about it, completely illegal, especially when, you, when an American citizen is involved. And then they do this crap redacted d- memo, what a, where they've redacted the actual legal reason. It's disgraceful, but not un- unexpected anymore, is it? You know what is expected is your awesome support because you guys want to keep this show on the air, and we really appreciate you keeping us going over at patreon.com slash unfilter, 288 supporters of the Unfiltered program. Now, why would you want to be an Unfiltered supporter? Well, this is an ad-free show. That way I can say any stupid thing I want. And when Chase is here, he can say any stupid thing he wants. And when President Clinton stops by, same thing, right? That's, that's the idea is this show really should be about genuinely talking about the issues. Like, we're, we're doing two weeks on Iraq, you guys. Okay, we're going to do two weeks on Iraq. You would never do that in a sponsor-based show. Not because the sponsor would even have a problem with it. The sponsor wouldn't even have an issue with it. And if, if on the Jupiter Broadcasting Network, if a sponsor came to us and said, you can't talk about that, that's too boring, we'd tell them to go fuck themselves. No, it's not because of that. It's because you wouldn't get the clicks. You wouldn't get the numbers you need in order to justify the price you'd have to charge to an advertiser to make it worth your time. Because this show is freaking expensive to make. But that's why we have a listener-supported system. Because the people who want the content support the content, and that's the number we have to hit. We have to make those people, 288 people, happy. It doesn't matter how many downloads an episode gets. It matters that 288 people are happy, and that fundamentally changes the recipe of how you make a show. So go to patreon.com, become an Unfiltered supporter. We have some recommended pledge levels you can jump in at. Uh, The uh, swag is all filled right now, that pledge level, but given some time. That might open up again, but I would recommend jumping at the $5 level if you would. But you can contribute anything you want. Really, any amount helps. And uh, once you become a supporter, you get the BitTorrent sync. You get the supporter show, which is a whole nother show. You get all the source files, all of the assets that make this show are notes. And you get the newsletter, plus you get to engage in the Patreon community. So go over to patreon.com slash unfilter and become a supporter of the Unfilter show. 
We really appreciate it. It keeps this show on the air, and that's a good thing because I think we got to be talking about this stuff. This week, Iraq continues on. And I thought maybe we'd take a, a lighthearted approach while we ease our way into it. One of the things that always gets me is I collect all these clips, and we played a great montage of just some really, really just dead wrong stuff McCain has said since 2001 about Iraq, about how the oil would pay for Iraq, about how the anthrax was linked to Saddam, uh, you know, all of these things that he said like on Letterman and he said on all of the Sunday shows. And it was a really good example of you know how he's kind of bumbled that up. And what really gets me, though, is the press never seems to call him on any of this stuff. He comes on all of their shows, on their air, as they call it. This is, this is how in the business they refer to it as, yeah, McCain was just on our air saying. And you always wonder, like, do they, do they believe what McCain is saying? Are they part of the scam? Or are they just up there being prostitutes? Well, we have a hot mic that gives us a little insight. Uh, Chuck Todd, right? That's his name. And uh, I can't, Hayes is the other guy's name. They're at the White House in the press room, and there was a mic left on. Now, listen carefully because this was a room mic. But what you'll hear is Chuck Todd and Hayes going back and forth laughing about the ridiculous crap that McCain is saying and how it's totally inane, but yet they don't say anything when they're actually on air. But this clip proves that they know it's all crap. So listen carefully. I know. I, mean, just, I gotta think like McKay must have had heart palpitations when he wrote David Petraeus said what? Oh, so now that'll be audio bomb. Here I'll play it back. I'll, I'll decipher so far. Does anybody know how McCain's doing now that David Petraeus came out against going into Iraq? I bet McCain had heart palpitations. Oh, now that'll be audio bomb. They have something on them. <laughs> well, what's funny is that McCain was on our air an hour ago saying. He should send Petraeus to Iraq. But, oh, right. He was to, to Iraq. Yeah. He said it an hour ago. And then oh, wow. he gave a speech history in London saying, we can't be the Air Force of Iraq. Right. That's what's amazing. No, he's like wanting Petraeus to be like... So then they say, what's crazy is he was just on our, our air saying that we should go into Iraq and we should have Air Force. And then he was on your air saying we shouldn't be the Air Force of Iraq. And then the other guy, I know, it's crazy. We can't be the Air Force of Iraq. Right. That's what's amazing. No, he's like wanting us to be like the guy. And it's crazy to say, we're not taking sides of this. I would think somebody in that country knows. Oh, we've been there. And silver one on the left. So there you go. Obviously, they realize these guys talk out their ass and just go on the air and lie to the American people, but yet they still don't say anything. So that's probably why you want to go over to patreon.com slash unfilter so we can tell us it like it is. Uh, now, let's talk a little bit about ISIS. So we've got this massive spying infrastructure in place. The NSA and the GCHQ are dragnetting the entire world, intercepting the terrorist communications in real time. So surely we saw this advance that ISIS was going to take this blitz across Iraq, as it's called. We saw this coming Right, Diane Feinstein, chair of the Intelligence Committee? And we knew they were threat. a brutal Did we bunch. know that, that uh, a third of Iraq could be taken over so quickly? Did we see uh, that coming? I would have to say no. Uh, but I think it's a real wake-up call for the United States uh, because they do want to develop the caliphate. Uh, they do want to, and they now have just about destroyed the border with Syria. Um, I think the president's doing the right thing. He's being a bit circumspect. He's uh, being thoughtful. Right. Now, let me, let me just go back to the first point. 
it is a little startling to me that after some intelligence failures in the past, that the, the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee says, yeah, it was a surprise to find out that they could move that quickly and kind of buzz their way through um, Sunni territories, but, but nonetheless, so quickly and get so close to Baghdad. What happened here? Isn't that, does that upset you? Is that <laughs> really you? Well, let's look at this practically. You either have to have the technical means uh, up in the sky or in other places, or you have to have assets, people who will give you human intelligence. This is a different culture. It's very difficult to pierce. Uh, the piercing intelligence-wise from the position of human intelligence has been very difficult all along. So uh, I, I think there is a, a view that, well, we, we're always going to criticize and um, we just can't do this. We have to build up the diversity of our intelligence assets oh, and see that they're at the, uh, yeah. local culture. We have lackings in, nor in North Africa, in Yemen. Uh, the world's a big place, Candy, <laughs> and this is extraordinarily difficult to do. Is the ISIS an immediate threat to U.S. homeland security? Well, I believe it can be. I believe that the recruiting in Europe, uh, there's no question in these three places, Spain, Germany, the number of passport fighters. Uh, we know there are at least a, a hundred Americans that have gone to the arena to fight who have an American passport. Oh. We're going to try to get back. We know that they can go back to the European country. And if it's a visa waiver country, come right into the United States. Now, I want you to pay attention here because what she's talking about is upping surveillance of people that come back to the United States. A hundred visas are in Syria right now. I mean, a hundred passports, a hundred passports. You know, there are at least a hundred Americans that have gone to the arena to fight who have an American passport who are going to try to get back. We know that they can go back to the European country. And if it's a visa waiver country come right into the United States. So this is where I think we need to build our intelligence to see that we can disrupt a plot in this country before it happens, because there will be plots to kill Americans. So Diane Feinstein's convinced that the situation with ISIS will result in plots against Americans. She said there is a threat against Americans. So keep that in mind. We're going to come back to that. But first, I want to start on something else. Do you believe that our intelligence agencies didn't know about ISIS? That's absolutely false. This comes as the head of Kurdish intelligence tells the Telegraph newspaper that he warned the CIA and Britain's intelligence agency, MI6, about the ISIS threat five months before the recent attacks. Oh, so what you're saying is they were warned five months before the recent attacks. Uh, okay, so they probably did know. Uh, in fact, you recall the clip we played. They've known since the early 90s that this would happen, and they've already been saying on the news that Iraq's going to split into three states. I mean, this is something that they've been talking about now for years, literally. Uh, however, the part that really hurts would be the situation in Syria and the oil situation. That's, I think, what we need to focus on for a little bit here on this show. I, I, we talked about the oil situation a little bit last week. We talked about the Syria thing a little bit last week. I want to double down on those this week. There are three main border crossings between Syria and Iraq. Militants took control of Tel Afar last week. Yesterday, Al-Qaim fell. Now Al-Walid, the last major border station under Iraqi control, has been overrun by gunmen. 
The seizures will allow ISIS to move heavy weapons and large numbers of fighters quickly and easily from Syria into Iraq. Oh, uh, hold on. Uh, just dumb question. Uh, when you say weapons from Syria, would be would those be the weapons that we've been the West has been supplying to the Syrian rebels that are now in the hands of ISIS in Iraq? The seizures will allow ISIS to move heavy weapons and large numbers of fighters quickly and easily from Syria into Iraq. Yet at a briefing today in Baghdad, the Iraqi Armed Forces spokesman claimed this was not a defeat for his army, but a tactical retreat. The withdrawal from these cities, he said, aimed to better redeploy the army in these regions to ensure better control. No, we're not running, dog. We're just buffing up. We're just moving over here, getting strong, stretching. We're not on retreat. And unfortunately, the situation now when it comes to oil, eh, depending on who you ask, it's bad. Iraqi government says there's no problem. However, everybody else says that uh, ISIS has taken over one of Iraq's largest oil refineries. This morning, U.S. fighter jets from the aircraft carrier USS Bush in the Persian Gulf are flying surveillance missions across Iraqi skies, gathering intelligence, looking for armed militants. The warplanes backed up by additional surveillance aircraft and drones patrolling the skies around the clock, providing the U.S. military on the ground real-time images from the Pentagon to Baghdad. But the U.S. says there are still gaps in intelligence, making large-scale airstrikes difficult without significant civilian casualties. But the clock is ticking. This morning, Iraq's largest oil refinery has reportedly fallen into the hands of the militants, who can now cut power across parts of Iraq and control the sale of gasoline. Like we mentioned last week, they're indeed selling that oil and then using those profits to fund their activities. Now, ABC just gave it sort of a quick mention there at the end of that report about the oil refinery. Uh, turns out uh, this oil refinery accounts for like almost a quarter of Iraq's oil production, or Iraq, depending on how you're supposed to say it. And I, Iraq's economy is essentially 95% oil. So this is kind of a big deal. Here's why it's important. Well, Baiji accounts for more than a quarter of Iraq's entire refining capacity. The facility processes about 300,000 barrels a day, supplying petrol stations nationwide as well as power plants. Battles over the Baiji refinery have already led to petrol rationing, but its seizure could mean massive queues at gas stations and lengthy electricity outages. Yeah, so now we're starting to talk about oil prices because, well, I mean, this is... A serious point. Uh, and of course, it just turns out the sectarian violence happens to be right along where a lot of the pipelines are. Isn't that interesting how that happens? Uh, so you got to ask yourself. We now know we've sent over 300 uh, specialists. They're not necessarily combat troops. They don't even call them ground troops, even though they are indeed actually on the ground. They call them advisors. So Nora Jones, I believe, I think it's who uh, got a chance to talk to Obama asked him, you know, what are we going to be doing with, with the troops? Scott, the Pentagon says it now has the necessary legal protections to allow teams of special forces to begin an on-the-ground assessment of the fighting in Iraq. And that's the first step toward determining whether airstrikes would do any good. The first two 12-man teams, made up of military personnel already in Baghdad, can start work almost immediately. At least two more teams are expected to fly in this week. They have three missions. Assess the condition of the Iraqi military, gauge the threat posed by the insurgents, beginning first around Baghdad, and determine how many more advisors are needed, up to a total of 300. 
If the advisors can identify insurgent targets worth hitting without causing civilian casualties, airstrikes could be launched from an aircraft carrier in the Persian Gulf. Oh, good. That's great. So one of the things we've been hearing a lot is let's do airstrikes, let's do airstrikes. And the Obama administration hasn't said, no, we're not doing airstrikes. That's crazy. What they've said is we don't know who we want to hit. Now, the Iraq government has even requested that the U.S. do airstrikes. So we've kind of gotten the green light, but we don't know who we want to hit. Well, guess what? These advisors aren't going to go in there blind. This is obviously becoming a CIA operation. They go in there. They have the eyes. They get the drones going. They do the surveillance. They identify the places. They send in the planes. Of course, they're going to have the uh, advisors there on the ground. It all makes sense now. So everybody's been going after them. Why only 300? Why only 300? You need 20,000 is what Dick Cheney said. You need 20,000 troops. Well, the reason is is because they don't do it that way anymore. They're going in with the intelligence agencies, and they're going in with some drones, and they're going in with air power. I don't know if it's going to work, but I think that's their plan, uh, which means they're going to rely heavily on surveillance. They're going to rely heavily on, on those advisors to identify targets. It'll be, uh, it's going to be, I don't want to say interesting to watch, uh, but we'll see how it goes, I guess. Uh, there's a little bit of a battle going on over the situation in Iraq, and I'm always... I just I don't understand why Dick Cheney and all these old all these old war hawks keep getting pulled back out to talk about Iraq because it to me seems like they blew it. So why are they coming back out? Uh, and Rand Paul kind of uh, apparently had that same thought, and he took to an editorial in response to an editorial that, that Dick Cheney wrote, in which Dick Cheney called the president a fool and hugely mistaken, et cetera, et cetera. So Rand Paul says, you know, we just need to stop ignore we just need to start ignoring all these guys that got it wrong before, and then. Uh, ABC uh, called up Dick Cheney and gave him a chance to respond. You wrote in your op-ed, rarely has a U.S. president been so wrong about so much at the expense of so many. But a lot of your critics, left and right, say that you are the one that has over and over again been wrong on Iraq, and they point to statements like these. Regime change in Iraq would bring about a number of benefits to the region. We will, in fact, be greeted as liberators. I think they're in in the last throes, if you will, of the insurgency. Now, Rand Paul, pointing to things like that, wrote in the Wall Street Journal also, many of those clamoring for military action now are the same people who made every false assumption imaginable about the cost, challenge, and purpose of the Iraq war. They have been wrong for so long. Why should we listen to them, listen to them again? Your response? With all, all due respect, John, I was a strong supporter then of going into Iraq. I'm a strong supporter now. Everybody knows what my position is. There's nothing to be argued about there. But if we spend our time debating what happened 11 or 12 years ago, we're going to miss the threat that is growing and that we do face. Rand Paul, with all due respect, is basically an isolationist. He doesn't believe we ought to be involved in that part of the world. I think it's absolutely essential. One of the things I worried about 12 years ago and that I worry about today is that there will be another 9-11 attack and that the next time it'll be with weapons far deadlier than airline tickets and box cutters. (laughs) That's a good line. That's a good line. Uh, I like like distilling, I like how he just distilled all of 9-11 down to box cutters. Uh, Only the cold cut of Dick Cheney's knife could cut that deep. Now, we remember our buddy, Dianne Feinstein, your friend, she was convinced that America was going to get attacked because of ISIS, just like Dick there was. So you got to figure, I'm sure Obama is pretty damn worried about ISIS and the threat it poses to the American people. How urgent of a threat 
to the American people is ISIS. I think it's fair to say that uh, their extreme ideology poses a medium and long-term threat. Uh, there are a lot of groups out there that probably have more advanced immediate plans directed against the United States that we have to be in, on uh, constant guard for. Oh. The thing about an organization like this is that typically when they control territory, because they're so violent, because they're so extreme, uh, over time, the local populations reject them. We've seen that uh, time and time again. So I, was his answer, now did I, I believe his answer was that we don't have to worry? Is that what he just said? Because they probably have more advanced immediate plans directed against the United States that we have to be in, on uh, constant guard for. The thing about it. So there's other groups. Oh, hmm. I don't understand because Dick and uh, uh Feinstein said that uh, they were an immediate threat. I believe Roger said the same. I just, I'm so confused. You know what we should do? Since I just can't seem to put it all together, maybe we should end on a bit of a high note, a hysterical high note this week. And I mean hysteria in the bad kind. So cannabis goes legal right here in Washington State next month. And our local media is completely crapping their pants about it. Thank you, Kristen. Her father allegedly gave her hash oil to make pot brownies that she took to school. Now the 16-year-old Puyallup girl has been placed under house arrest at her sister's home. Come before us, Matt Markovich shows us what happened at her first court appearance. The 16-year-old made her first appearance ever in a courtroom, charged with three counts of distributing a controlled substance, wow. a felony, in a state that's legalized the adult use of marijuana. She's accused of making a batch of brownies mixed with BHO, butane hash oil, she got from her father, who's also been arrested for distributing a controlled substance. Okay, I'm loving this already. Think of the children, people. So we've got, think of the children in here. We've got hash oil and we've got edible. You guys know we've been doing this segment now for a little while. This is the freaking trifecta. They're nailing it right now. Here we go. End of the month. It's about to go legal. All three notes. Prosecutors say she gave the pot brownies to three classmates at Emerald Ridge High School. They got sick, told the school nurse, and that's how the teenager was caught. Didn't make them a little bit high, <laughs> made them sick. Oh, That's a problem. Sheriff Paul Pastor is making an example of the case, warning that kids bringing homemade marijuana edibles to school may happen more often. And it's hard to judge how strong the edibles can be. You can take very high levels of THC and it's not going to kill you. You can be very uncomfortable. Professionals say there are warning signs if someone's eaten a strong pot brownie. It can cause severe uh, confusion, acute psychosis, hypotension. Okay, and no contact with any of the alleged victims and no contact with your father. Basically. The judge told the alleged first-time offender she's placing her under house arrest into the custody of her sister until the trial. Her father, Michael Dennis Miller, remains in jail after authorities discovered a large marijuana grow operation at the family home in Puyallup. Oh, bummer. Yeah, so he stays in jail. The kid's in house arrest. Uh, that was a pretty good trifecta. Uh, maybe we could get one more think of the children, though, because really, and I got you know what, you guys, I, I'm, I, 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 did not, I didn't even grab half of them. I didn't even grab half of them. I just picked a couple for you. Not even like the best. I just like, well, there's here's a few of them. I can't do too many of these. But we got to play one more. John Hurt wanted to make sure his kids were equipped with the right information to make good decisions about drugs. Now, remember last week, I think it was, we played a clip where a dad took out some Skittles or M&Ms was like, look, kids, these could be pot. And then that they actually made a new segment out of that. You probably remember that clip. And it was like, I can't believe they've turned this into a new segment. 
And I was like, they would never. They must have just like they needed to. They needed to just put something in there for three minutes and twenty three seconds. They had to have a segment. They'll never do that again. They, that was that was a fluke. They had to fill time. So he initiated the conversation. We've discussed a lot about with our kids to uh, not have be pressured into doing drugs and uh, all that kind of stuff. And if someone comes up to you, approaches you, and tells you, "Hey, do you want to smoke pot behind uh, school?" or just tell them, you know, no, thank you. It is a message that has stuck with his son Tyler. No, thanks, bro. No, thanks. And you know, really, when, you know, that's all it takes for kids. That's, you do that, you're good, parents. That's all you got to worry about. It's helped because there's people at my, at my school that do drugs and stuff. So then if I know if anybody comes up to me or anything to ask if I want to do drugs, to say no because I'm doing, I want to do good in school. Of course, those drugs are Ritalin and antidepressants. And <laughs> Washington Department of Health wants all parents to start the same conversation. And they have a new ad campaign to help them. One out of five 10th graders in Washington already uses marijuana, increasing their risk for school failure and depression. Now that it's legal for those over 21, it's more important than ever to talk to your kids about the risks of marijuana. Health officials say brain development continues at least until a person is 21 years old. So watch out, everybody. Because once you turn 21, you're good, though. Your brain doesn't develop anymore after that. Don't bother learning nothing. Can't teach an old dog new tricks. So smoke all the weed you want after 21. But before 21, don't you go near it. Unless you have horrible convulsions, or you have cancer, or you can't eat anything. You know, those kinds of things. Then maybe if you're under 21. But other than that. All right, listen, I'd love to have you go over to our subreddit, unfilter.reddit.com. Really good stuff in the subreddit this week. I really appreciate it. There was tons of stuff that I wanted to work in, but I decided since Chase wasn't here, I'd make this a companion to 102, so it's sort of like part one, part two. So I kept it really focused. But I really appreciate the contributions over at unfilter.reddit.com. Also, thanks to everybody who went over to iTunes and commented on our MP3 feed. You guys helped with, disco- you guys helped with Discovery, and we're still asking for folks to do that. I know it means you got to use iTunes. But we'd really appreciate it. Oh, one big disclaimer. Unfilter's on Monday next week. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going out of town. So I'll be shooting Unfilter Monday evening, 6 p.m. We're going to update the calendar. In fact, it should be already updated. You can always go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar to get all of that stuff. So instead of doing our Wednesday night, join us on a Monday night. That might be an opportunity for somebody who can't normally make it because when you come over to our live page... You get the supporter show. You get to help name the show. You get to hang out with us. It's a really good time. So we'd love to have you for episode 104, Monday night, over at jblive.tv, 6 p.m. Pacific, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. Uh, don't forget you can follow me on Twitter, twitter.com slash chrisalias. That's another way to find out when we're live. That's another way to find out if times have changed, too. Twitter.com slash chrisalias. And go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact and send in your feedback to The Unfiltered Show. All right, everyone. Well, thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of Unfilter. We'll see you right back here next week.